The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. It's Tuesday, very good morning. You're watching Squawk Box Europe and these are your headlines. The US imposes sanctions on Turkish officials and raises steel tariffs to 50%. As President Trump demands Ankara stops a military offensive in northeast Syria. US stocks slip and oil prices extend losses as questions arise over the US-China trade pact. Whilst investors turn their attention to key Brexit negotiations later this week. China's September producer prices fall at their fastest pace in three years, while pork prices surge nearly 70 percent, pushing food prices higher. And Facebook's Libra crypto project admits regulatory issues, but vows to push ahead as online travel group Booking.com becomes the latest partner to jump ship. Right, a very good morning. Let's start off with the uh, growing crisis on the Turkish-Syrian border. President Trump says he is, quote, fully prepared to, wait for it, destroy Turkey's economy. I think previously he'd said he would obliterate it, potentially. Uh, that's as he authorized new sanctions on Ankara in an effort to halt its military operation in northern Syria. In a statement, the president also said that steel tariffs on Turkey will be raised to 50% adding that trade talks with the country will be immediately stopped. Well, let's take a look at uh, what the Turkish lira is currently doing. And actually, if you look at the move, uh, only down 4.1% over the last 30 days. I mean, yes, uh, it has declined versus the greenback. Currently, uh, the dollar just losing a little bit of ground in the current session, but nowhere near as precipitous as some of the declines we've seen and the volatility we've seen in previous crises. Well, let's get to Dan Murphy, who's got the latest for us. Uh, Dan, I believe you're on the ground in Istanbul. Steve, good morning to you. We're live in Istanbul, continuing to assess the economic and political fallout from the US's latest measures. Let's start on the lira. As you were highlighting, down about 5% this month alone and 10% YTD. But the moves just over the past few hours would suggest to us that the latest measures that the US has enacted on Turkish individuals and the economy are basically more bark than bite. As you pointed out as well, what the president has announced here is a 50% increase on steel exports to the United States from Turkey. We have seen steel exports gradually decreasing over the past two years. Turkey is still the world's eighth largest exporter of steel. However, uh, one expert described it to me just a few moments ago as being mostly inconsequential given the volumes of exports that are now going to the United States. Uh, at the same time, part of this package of measures announced by the United States also involves the halting of negotiations over a $100 billion trade pact. Important to also point out that that trade deal was already being delayed. So clearly uh, there is some concern perhaps now among some within the administration that these measures won't go far, far enough to curb some of Turkey's actions 
in northeastern Syria. Interesting to also hear from the US Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, who was addressing the media overnight. In announcing these sanctions, he has essentially also called upon the Turkish leader to halt his actions in northeastern Syria, but also announced a move to target individuals within the government specifically, including the interior, defense and energy ministers. Listen into some of what Mr Mnuchin had to say. Effective immediately. We have sanctioned three of the ministers, the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Interior, and the Minister of Energy. We have also sanctioned the Department of Defense and the Department, the Ministry of Energy. Uh, these sanctions are both primary sanctions as well as secondary sanctions for any financial institutions that are doing significant transactions. Overnight, we also heard from the U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, who echoed those concerns held by the Treasury Secretary. He, too, called upon President Erdogan to cease, behavior, cease his behavior uh, in northeastern Syria, essentially uh, asking the president here to enact negotiations with the Kurds and also enact a ceasefire. Exactly how Turkey responds really remains to be seen. So far, the administration has stayed mostly silent on the measures that were announced overnight. But more broadly, it's going to be important to assess how this is going to impact the economy. And as I pointed out before, these moves seen as mostly inconsequential by at least one expert that we've spoken to today. Uh, more broadly on the currency, though, also important to look at how this is going to impact the lira moving forward. Uh, as I said before, the lira has certainly been under pressure. And now this growing rift between the United States and Turkey is likely to do nothing to instill confidence within the currency, which has already been battered uh, with the Turkish economy entering a recession last year and the currency also facing a similar crisis. So a lot to unpack there, guys. I'll toss it back over to you. Yeah, let me just ask you to unpack a little bit more. Uh, anybody who wonders why Turkey is an important country needs to look at it on a map, of course, uh, and you'll see that it borders countries such as Syria, Iran and Iraq as well. So a very important East meets West nation, as indeed it has been, of course, historically as well. And we're showing a little bit of that uh, on the screen now, Dan. But the US relationship, the West relationship, the NATO relationship with Turkey is something I'm absolutely fascinated. And of course, we saw the whole F-35, S-400 issue earlier in the year as well, uh, i.e. the Russian defense systems and American fighters were just not compatible as well. We saw the crisis over the American pastor, uh, Andrew Brunson as well. So how sits the relationship in the broader perspective between Turkey and the West now? Well, I think it's quite clear, Steve, that the relationship is certainly deteriorating, isn't it? Uh, what we've seen in the US president's decision to withdraw troops from Syria is essentially a power vacuum being created that Turkey has now been able to fill. At the same time, we've also heard from the US administration threatening to sanction Turkey over the purchase of that Russian missile defense system that has certainly caught the ire of the US president who sees weapon sales and relations, relationships built on defense as a key platform of his foreign policy. So this is going to be interesting to see how it all comes out in the wash. But Steve, I would contend the ultimate winner here is probably going to be Russia, uh, who also is going to be very going to be keeping a very close eye uh, on President Erdogan's next move, uh, indeed, and uh, and Russia's involvement in the Syrian civil war as well, uh, which has been um, very closely aligned uh, in, in recent years. So that is the vacuum that's being created, and clearly uh, the the United States is now essentially taking a, a back step and and being being uh, asked to pull back uh, in a way. 
Dan, I want to just pick up on that point. Yesterday, we were speaking on Street Signs with Mary Jo Jacoby, a former U.S. Assistant Commerce uh, Secretary, who said she is watching President Putin most closely this week. What are the implications of President Putin stepping into this vacuum that you just described and playing the role of peacemaker in this region? Well, whether or not he's going to be able to play the role of peacemaker, peacemaker uh, really does remain to be seen. Clearly, this is something that the United States would like to avoid. Uh, they see Russian aggression in the region as a threat and uh, improving Russian ties with a number of countries in this part of the world as a key concern. Just look at the situation in Iran, for example, uh, and further beyond as well, Russia's ties to the likes of China and, as I pointed out before, Russia's relationship with Syria. So there is a very clear geopolitical uh, upshift happening, uh, an upheaval happening in this part of the world that the United States is now really being called upon to defend. Whether or not the US administration has the willpower and willingness to do so remains to be seen because at the same time, this is a president who has long campaigned on removing American troops and taking America out of what he calls the endless wars, something uh, that the president is very personally focused on. So let's see what happens next. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that, Dan. Dan reporting, of course, out of Istanbul. Um, question. I mean, you've got your eyes uh, firmly glued as well on what's going on in the United States as well. This isn't playing out very well with Republicans. Of course, Democrats are going to criticise the president over this. Mm. Uh, that goes without saying as well. But I understand that Mitch McConnell, amongst others, who is the Senate majority leader as well, and of course, an absolutely key figure in the impeachment process, excuse me, <clears throat> he's been very concerned as well, saying gravely concerned by recent events Syria and by our nation's apparent response thus far, uh, warned that a precipitous withdrawal would benefit Russia, Iran and Bashar al-Assad, as well as ISIS as well. The president is in election mode. We know that as well. But he needs Republican support in the Senate and throughout the country as well. Is this playing badly with his base? Well, given it's happening at the same time as the impeachment trial, when the Republican senators are going to be put to the test in terms of uh, supporting President Trump or going against him, uh, it is really interesting to see that the Republicans, uh, certainly a contingency of Republicans, have been the ones pushing for these sanctions. So it's a, an interesting time for President Trump. But, uh, of course, he is the master of distraction. And given, given all that's going on on the trade front right now, the timing of his withdrawal of these troops is certainly noteworthy. All right. We'll spend a bit of time talking about the, the trade front a little bit later. In the meantime, you mentioned the concern that this will benefit the likes of the Russians as well. Mr. Putin's in the region. He is. And just to give you an update on his plans, he will travel to the UAE today as part of a tour of the Gulf region. And Putin met with Saudi Arabia's king and crown prince on Monday in his first visit to the kingdom since 2007. Now, the leaders discussed the relationship between the two countries as well as oil prices and energy policy. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia is set to greenlight the domestic listing of Aramco this week. That's according to the FT. The paper reports the board of the state-backed oil company will then approve the float before it is announced on October 20th. However, the report added that it remains unclear if Aramco will be able to secure the $2 trillion valuation sought by the kingdom's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Well, coming up on Squawk Box, Washington threatens further tariffs on Beijing if no deal is agreed in the coming months. We'll discuss that, plus why pork prices have boosted China's CPI. Uh, coming up on the show as well, the ECB delved further into negative rate territory in September in a bid to ignite inflation. 
We're going to speak to one of the trailblazers of the policy, the Riksbank Governor Stefan Ingves, will join us at 8.30 CET. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. So Wall Street struggled yesterday after a decent run on the back of that trade deal optimism. But China really poured cold water on what was a positive setup for markets. And we saw the Nasdaq, the S&P 500 and the Dow all slip into negative territory yesterday. Now, while President Trump, of course, billed this as a partial agreement and triggered a wave of optimism across global markets, the Chinese side of things was a little bit more downbeat, uh, suggesting that we need more talks before we can agree on a more lasting deal. Of course, geopolitics also front and center on investors' minds, as we were just discussing before the break, uh, with the U.S. moving to impose symbolic sanctions on Turkey uh, after the U.S. withdrew their troops from northern Syria. And then, of course, we've got the impeachment uh, saga going on in the background. And yesterday, uh, we had Trump's ex-Russia advisor testify in the impeachment inquiry uh, behind closed doors. So a lot for investors to to digest on the political front yesterday and putting it all together and meant to drag on U.S. stocks. Also, take note, we are heading into Q3 earnings season. They will begin in earnest today, so investors positioning for an update uh, from a number of different corporates kicking off this week. Let's take a look at oil markets where we saw Brent and WTI settle lower yesterday to the tune of about 2%. Now this morning in recent trade, we're seeing WTI and Brent pull back even further. Now we've got uh, some weak China data out overnight for investors to digest on top of those doubts that are brewing around the US-China trade deal. Gold has been benefiting uh, amid this a bit of a risk off sentiment we've seen over the last 24 hours hours or so this morning, trading a touch higher, just below the $1,500 per ounce mark. Taking a look at Asian markets overnight, it's been a bit of a mixed session. The Hang Seng and the Shanghai Composite trading below the flat line. Over in Japan, the Nikkei 225 outperforming, trading up about 1.85%. Australian stocks also trading a touch in positive territory. Let's take a look at European opening calls. What does this all mean for the European session? Well, we're looking at a bit of a bounce of four European stocks. The DAX is looking for a 23-point rise at the open. FTSE MIB over in Italy looking for about the same, while here in the UK we're looking at a fairly muted start to trade. Of course, Brexit front and center as we are just days away from that all-important summit. And questions, of course, remain over the likelihood, the prospect, the potential that we see a deal agreed. Steve? Steve? 
Excellent. Okay, let's move on. China's PPI has declined at its quickest rate in three years in September. Factory gate prices fell 1.2% year on year during the period. Meanwhile, CPI rose at its steepest pace in almost six years, boosted by a sharp increase in pork prices as China grapples to contain the outbreak of African swine fever. The data is expected to pile more pressure on Beijing to impose further stimulus measures. Now, Emily Tan filed this report from Hong Kong. Latest data from China showing consumers are feeling the price pressure. CPI spiked at the fastest pace in six years as food prices rose by double digits. September CPI jumping 3% on year as the cost of pork surged nearly 70% because of African swine fever. Core retail inflation remains modest. At the factory gate, prices recorded their steepest fall in three years, down 1.2% on year. Producer price deflation is expected to continue to deepen. The diverging trend between consumer and producer prices pose fresh challenges to policymakers in Beijing. But analysts anticipate further stimulus from the mainland as manufacturing cools on weak demand and trade war pressures. We're in the midst of a busy week on China's economic calendar as trade data released yesterday showed contractions in both exports and imports. The market looks to Friday now and the release of Q3 GDP and monthly activity indicators. Expectations are for 6.1% growth on year, slipping from the 6.2% read in Q2. Back to you. And a fresh round of tariffs against Chinese imports will go ahead in December if no trade deal is reached with Washington. That's the view of the U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who told CNBC that whilst he believes that both sides will eventually reach an agreement, the threat of extra levies remains. Mnuchin also held recent high-level talks with Beijing, but added there was still a long way to go before they can confirm the details of the so-called Phase 1 decree. We have a fundamental agreement. It is subject to documentation, and there's a lot of work to be done on that front. But it includes intellectual property rights. It includes financial services. It includes currency and foreign exchange. And it also includes very significant structural issues in agriculture uh, on top of significant purchases. So I would describe phase one as quite substantial. Frederick Neumann joins us, co-head of Asian Economies, Economics Research at HSBC. Frederick, really nice to see you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us early today. Um, what do you make of the, the current state of the Chinese economy in the broad before we talk about the individual issues? So you got the PPI this morning shows disinflationary pressures and there's still a lot of downside risk here. The housing market, for example, is held up so far, but there's a risk that you get construction rolling off as well. And the PPI then takes another leg down, if you will. So uh, there's still down downside pressure, even if you just take the the trade tensions to the side, domestic demand still uh, on the weakening slope here. Why? Why is there a lack of domestic demand? So it's really a policy choice in some sense. Uh, The Chinese have tightened the reins on monetary policy. They're not really giving too much on the fiscal side. And there's a a decision here in Beijing to actually de-risk the economy. They took this decision about two and a half years ago, and they're sticking to it. Now, the whole world is clamoring for, you know, stimulus, stimulus, stimulus. But actually, in some ways, the Chinese are exactly doing what we always wanted them to do, which is run a slightly more disciplined policy and just keeping things uh, from, from reflating too quickly. How much of a slowdown do you think Beijing is willing to tolerate? 
So, so far, they still seem to have a, quite a lot of tolerance for, for a bit of pain here. Um, now, the, the threat level, really, or the threshold is unemployment. If you see that rise, then clearly they will have to do more. But despite all these uh, tweets, etc., about big job losses, it's really not quite as dramatic yet on the mainland. Um, you see a bit of uh, job losses at the margin, but it's not really a big, big uh, disruption just yet. And linking this to what's going on on the trade front with the U.S., the fact that a lot of the uh, drivers of the weakness we're seeing in the Chinese economy are, in fact, domestic and not related directly to the trade war. What does this mean in terms of Beijing's appetite to keep the trade war going in the sense that it offers the the Chinese government a, a culprit, someone to blame for the weakness, even though it's actually coming from the domestic side of things? There's, well, yeah, perhaps you could say, uh, you know, we blame it on the on the U.S. and take a bit of pain domestically. But there's also really an interest in, among the Chinese to not let the trade war escalate too much. Right. So uh, you want to have an interim deal if you can get that. You want to kind of stretch out uh, time, play for time, maybe a little bit and uh, avoid uh, maybe even harsher sanctions being put on the economy, not just uh, tariffs. It's not just about tariffs, but remember technologies in there, financial flows. Uh, so really, uh, the Chinese are quite aware that there are a lot of risks, and, and therefore, um, yes, they still want to kind of get, a, get to a mini deal if possible. There has been a <clears throat> U.S.-centric view that because the Chinese sell more goods to the United States than the U.S. sells to China, that actually the U.S. has a lot of the, the key cards here in this. Is that still the case, given the timescale and given the fact that, of course, in the U.S. there is a, a, a bit of a, a, a view, a, an eye to what's going on electorally? Well, not quite, because those numbers do not include the sales that U.S. companies have in China. So if Apple produces an iPhone in China and sells in the domestic market, it's not really captured in the bilateral trade statistics. Yeah. So actually, U.S. corporations have much more at stake than the exports from the U.S. to China would suggest. Uh, the other thing is we have electoral cycles in the U.S. Uh, the farmers are important, important constituency, uh, manufacturing areas, the Midwest. So um, it's so not the U.S. Quite is at some form of disadvantage, you would suggest. Well, yes. If you if you think of the, you know, we have to go back to the polls every four years, and and so uh, it's not quite as if the U.S. is entirely immune as well. And I think that's why we see now both sides, at least temporarily, wanting to reach a deal. Um, but risk remains that next year things and again uh, sort of heat up in terms of tension. So we're not quite out of the woods just yet. So on that basis, I mean, do you think that it's right to be talking about the trade war and thinking about it as something that does have a possible resolution uh, in sight? Or is this just the new normal, the way that trade is going to persist in the future, given the new paradigm that we're in? It's likely some friction is likely to persist into the future. We have two big economic powers, they're both vying for number one spot in the world economy. And so it's about managing these tensions, managing the relationship. We're not going to have that magic bullet big deal that makes everything go away. But you can certainly reduce the tensions and have sort of a working relationship, a competitive relationship. Beyond China, how are other key players in the region benefiting or suffering from this as well? And we, we talk about other key nations, including South Korea, 
and Japan, and then people look at um, uh, emerging nations such as Vietnam possibly being a source for other production instead of China as well. So just give us the round robin of what, how you believe the region is coping with this trade war. So the big story here is actually not the U.S.-China trade tension, it's China's slowdown. And the entire region depends on China's growth. So to the extent that China is shifting down growth, everybody's going to see exports decelerate. And so even a place like Vietnam, which is you know, benefiting from supply chain rejigging is still going to feel a pinch from a slower Chinese economy. Now, at the margin, Southeast Asia looks fairly resilient. Maybe Northeast Asia, a bit more exposed to trade tensions. Uh, within Southeast Asia, you've got Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, you know, being economies that really benefit at the margin. But don't make the mistake that there are any winners in these trade tensions. Everybody still loses when growth slows down. And we haven't really touched on Hong Kong too much. And you mentioned Singapore there. And I've been reading increasingly about how Singapore has been benefiting or is certainly poised to benefit from the unrest in Hong Kong, given it is a similar financial hub for the region, a similar sort of connection between the East and the West. What are your sort of expectations as the Hong Kong situation obviously continues to be a massive headwind for the whole Chinese, Chinese region? So I think in the short term, we make a bit too much about these headlines. Um, but if you take a step back, Singapore has played its cards extremely well over the, over the years. And you've seen already, you know, uh, over time, uh, Singapore attracting a lot of business. Singapore's advantage, it is embedded in a region that's now very resilient. That's ASEAN. It's really the gateway to ASEAN, and it benefits from that particular status. Hong Kong has vanished, probably still is the gateway to China. And uh, I think that's something that will actually still persist geographically alone. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.